Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The Bob Seska Show. Bob Seska. Bob. 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 La Luga 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 Luga. Why don't I just call you Bob? The Bob Seska Show. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, July 26, 2023, and this is the Bob Seska interview on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Bob. Hello, Bob. Hi. Day 917 of the Biden-Harris administration, 467 days until the 24 presidential election. You can find me on Instagram, the Bob Seska, Twitter, or whatever the hell we're calling it, Bob Seska underscore go. Spoutable is Bob Seska. Threads is the Bob Seska. Are you getting all this? And, of course, the Patreon page is bobseskashow.com. Have you seen Oppenheimer yet? Well, whether you have or haven't, the subject of the movie, Robert Oppenheimer's development of the atomic bomb, presents a moral conundrum for all time. So for today's show, we're talking with author and documentarian Greg Mitchell about the questions the movie raises, as well as some background behind the justifications for developing the bomb and its usage at the end of World War II. Don't forget to subscribe to Greg's Substacks, gregmitchell.substack.com. Also, oppenheimer2023.substack.com. Links, of course, in the description at bobseska.com. Meantime, think about supporting this fully independent podcast by subscribing to our Patreon page, bobseskashow.com. Okay, here's me and Greg Mitchell talking about Oppenheimer. More fun, more music, the Bob Seska Show. Well, good to talk to you again. Yeah, great to have you here. Thanks so much for stopping by uh, to talk about the big summer blockbuster. So, did you like Barbie? <laughs> have not seen it yet. Have not okay. seen it. I, I actually, uh, I, I was surprised by some of the reviews of it. And I said, well, maybe this is actually a kind of a smart, interesting movie to see. And then, and I thought maybe younger people love it. Maybe I should see it. But uh I've heard from some younger people who weren't so crazy about it either, so it makes me makes me more wary. I've heard that it's pretty good. It's got a good feminist message. It just would have been awkward to have you on just to talk about Barbie. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll I'll can interject if once in a while if you want. So seriously though, what did you think of Oppenheimer, the actual summer blockbuster I was referencing? Yeah, I um, you know, I saw an early screening, and I you know I've been writing about it for almost two weeks now, and my I started a new Substack. I uh, adjunct to my regular substack called Oppenheimer from Hiroshima 
to Hollywood. Yeah. And I've been writing daily dispatches of uh, analysis of the film and some, you know, commentary by others and links and so forth. So it's gotten gotten quite a bit of interest, but I've been on sort of, I went to an early screening, so I've been able to digest it and, you know, write about it a great deal in different, yeah. many different angles, uh, unlike just one shot review. Um, and, you know, what I found was that, as many people have seen in a lot of the reviews, it's a very powerful movie. It's extremely well-directed. It's well-written. Uh, the acting is great. Uh, it's technically great. It's actually surprisingly accurate for a movie of this sort. Uh, it's based on a, a bio of Oppenheimer by two of my friends, Kai Bird and the late Marty Sherwin. Yeah, that's and, uh, American Prometheus, right? Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, actually what's there is is quite accurate surprisingly and uh, you know hmm. nolan says he basically sat down to write the script with the book as his maybe his only guide uh, only then did he sell the movie he's he's basically went through the book and wrote the movie and so i uh, you know that's terrific and i also think it has a great ending i think it's uh, uh it it does f uh focus on the current and future dangers of nuclear weapons so that's all good. But, you know, as you know, as you know, I've been writing about this issue for about 40 years. Oh, yeah. And uh, but my focus uh, has been more on the use of the bomb against Japan, the immediate aftermath there, and then mm -hmm. the many years of aftermath in the U.S., the reaction to the use of the bomb um, yeah. to this day and why it, what the legacy is and what the dangers are today that causes that is caused by the american uh, response to the use of the bomb twice uh, killing about 160,000 or so civilians yeah mainly women and children um so you know i'm not a typical moviegoer uh i i come to it not only with a lot of knowledge about uh, what actually happened but more of a focus on the use of the bomb not this not Oppenheimer's life or this great project of, you know, uh, building the bomb at Los mm -hmm. Alamos and the, the test at Trinity and and then Oppenheimer grappling afterwards with the hydrogen bomb and then his security clearance, you know. So, um, you know, I have kind of a special, but I think a very important uh, focus. So, you know, when I saw the movie, although I thought, again, I think everyone should see it. It's very well done by and large. There are some really significant omissions is what my problem is. And we can you know, start to tick them off if you like. Yeah, yeah. I, before we get into that, um, I, I want to go back to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And maybe that's the part of the omissions you're talking about. But you wrote that the Nolan movie uh, links Oppenheimer more closely to the Trinity test than to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which right. is exactly what Louis Strauss sought to do in real life, right? <laughs> well, you know, the filmmakers and I, I guess I could be called a, you know, a historian of, of, uh, of Hollywood and TV mm. uh, examples of, of covering this, uh, this particular uh, episode. Um, but, you know, directors and I suppose audiences love the Trinity test. Uh, they love to see it. They love to see the build up to it, the drama mm. of it. It's a great success. Uh, it, the scientists celebrate, um, you know, it's an amazing accomplishment on, on one level. Um, and, uh, and no one died that day. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 
you know, 160,000 civilians died and and more uh, if you if you count military people. But uh, it was uh, it's quite it's a totally different thing. So f- filmmakers love to focus on Trinity and and kind of get get past Hiroshima and Nagasaki as easily as they can, which mm-hmm. you know Nolan kind of follows in that pattern. Uh, all you from all the trailers, from all the pub promo, uh, it's all about the Trinity test and uh, technical effects and everything else. So. Uh, in that sense, it's no different. Now, one you know, one of the omissions, however, is that uh, again, unlike uh, like other directors, Nolan does not show what happened after the explosion at Trinity. While the scientists were celebrating, was that a radioactive cloud drifted over the nearby communities? No one was warned. No one was evacuated. Yeah, fall fell on them and their their livestock. And, and then kept drifting across the state. And there was just a study this week uh, reported in the New York Times a few days ago that found that actually a fallout uh, fell in 46 states after Trinity. Uh, and then, but this also set the precedent and set in, in motion what became decades of US weapons tests, uh, you know, in the atmosphere uh, all through the, mainly the 50s into the 60s where we had this combination of lethality and secrecy yeah. where people did not really know the dangers uh, and ever i mean i grew up then i i uh, was drinking it drinking the fallout in my milk oh god famous famously reported yeah um so um you know but but the trinity t- again just kind of all there was a cover-up at the time and in some ways the film uh, films like the Nolan movie, it can in a way continue a cover up in the sense that they don't really mention it. So it it, it can kind of people would would never know just watching the movie. So that's that's sort of the Trinity link there. Yeah. Um, now another fact, another thing in the movie is that it never uh, never really shows what happened on the ground in Hiroshima. Again, a rather major oversight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we see uh, there's a key scene where we see briefly uh, Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer in a screening room watching a uh, screen. And you can tell from a little bit of the narration on the screen that they're they're showing some footage of from Hiroshima. You're not quite sure what, but at least it's on the ground in Hiroshima. And Oppenheimer turns a little reflective and maybe seems to show some uh, pain in his face watching this, but we never see what's on the screen whatsoever. Hmm. And we don't elsewhere in the movie. Um, but um, on my Substack uh, uh, newsletter today, blog, uh, I show it that in the 1979 PBS series, Oppenheimer, it's starring Sam Waterston, they had the really almost the exact same scene, same camera angle, and we see Oppenheimer watching the screen. But in that movie, they shift the camera so we can see uh, a little bit what's on the screen, including some of the victims. Not not too graphic, but at least we see, you know, forty five seconds of what happened on the ground. And Nolan has the same camera angle, but he never <laughs> he never focuses it on the screen. So. Uh, so that's a major omission. Another mm-hmm. one, just very briefly, they they 
they barely mentioned Nagasaki. There's like three references to it almost parenthetically in the last hour, almost like they, they threw it. They said, oh, gee, you know, we forgot to mention Nagasaki. We better shoehorn it in. Yeah, it's like uh, uh, Marianne and the professor at the end of the Gilligan's Island yeah, theme song. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, and the rest. It's just yeah, it gets so right. short shrifted by history, doesn't it? There you go. I'll never get that out of my mind now that you mentioned it. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that's happened before, though. But um but but then another major major one is that uh, and really crucial to me and my uh, work over the decades is the movie does not really challenge. In fact, it rather sustains the what I call the Hiroshima narrative or, uh, you know, the atomic narrative or official narrative that's held sway with the media and, you know, and many historians and the public since 1945 which is uh there you know there's a key scene which is again is quite factual actually uh the interim committee which was the chief advisory committee for truman had this uh meeting at the end of may and they sort of briefly discuss well where how should we use the bomb or should we use the bomb on people and uh that quickly gets shut down including by oppenheimer who who takes the lead in in dismissing any any suggestion of a demonstration of the bomb or telling the Japanese anything or a demonstration shot. Again, it's quite factual. Uh, Killian Murphy is great. Um, and we do see Oppenheimer at different times uh, suggesting regret. Or, uh, but you never quite know what he's sorry about if he is sorry. Uh, it's very muddled. Uh, it's more like he's regretful that maybe that maybe he helped bring this bomb into the world, which you know, continues to threaten us, but not specifically about the decision to use the bomb. And mm -hmm. in fact, real life Oppenheimer, you know, did not offer regret. I mean, right up to the end of his life, 1965, he was still doing interviews where he was defending the use of the bomb. <laughs> so, uh, but if you watch the movie, you know, you, he kind of has to do all the work of, well, he's regretful about something. Could it be the use of the bomb? Yeah. Or, or whatever. So uh, I think it's a very uh, unfortunate missed opportunity for that official narrative to be challenged, you know, challenged more and that people will kind of get get their minds opened about it. You know, one of the things I always am curious about, Greg, is and this is going back to Trinity and the lead up to it. There were so many above ground tests in the Southwest, including some of the tests that contributed to the nuclear milk that you apparently drank. Uh, yeah. What was the rationale, though, for these tests, given the serious health risks that would occur as a result of all of that radiation? Or did they yeah. just not know? Did they not understand the contamination that would take place after all of these tests? No, they they knew about it. Uh, they just number one, they didn't care. Uh, oh. Number two, they, they kept most of it secret. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, they wanted to test these new generations of bombs. Once the H bomb came up, they kept getting bigger. You know, well, we we this one's giant, and the next one is going to be massive, and the next one's going to mm -hmm. be super massive. And um, you know, they set them off in the Pacific uh, to get even underwater. What what are the underwater effects? Uh, and then in Nevada, uh, in the atmosphere, yeah. uh, and and you know, again, the problem with not having really any, hardly any mention of radiation in the whole three-hour movie is so many Americans were affected more than more than me. Uh, the uh, soldiers who were marched, uh, literally marched under the mushroom cloud in Nevada. Oh. Uh, 
the uh, workers in the nuclear industry, uh, the downwinders, of course, who live downwind from the fallout, again, much more affected than I would have been, you know, uh, a couple thousand miles away, but still. Um, and they even did medical experiments uh, with people using radiation. So, uh, and then of course today, even today, we have the the nuclear waste problem that we're never going to get, never going to get rid of. Uh, so, the legacy of Trinity, the legacy of making and using the bomb, goes far beyond just a debate about, well, you know, should we Truman have dropped the bomb or not? You know, uh, and so uh, I mean, I think it's fine that the film has a wider focus. But on the other hand, you would hope it would kind of get closer to the truth on, uh, you know, the whole thing that started this, um, yeah. you know, the actual use of the bomb, not just trying to keep the genie in the bottle. I'm just perpetually astonished by the sheer number of above ground nuclear tests that took place by yeah. the United States on American soil. There's a animation that was going around maybe 10 years ago, and it was a world map and it clicked through all of the years, starting with Trinity on through modern times. And there was a, a dot that would show up for whatever nuclear test took place that day. I mean, also including Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And well, by, by coincidence, Bob, I posted that five minute video on my at my Substack. Oh, wow. Oppenheimer, my Oppenheimer Substack yesterday. And so yeah. if you people want to see it it's it but it's right it, it's it's like an animation where you see these little pops yeah like you, you kind of see the okay these two in uh japan and then uh, a few seconds later you see a few scattered in the pacific and then you suddenly see on <laughs> the mainland of the u.s pop 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 uh, it's it's really kind of shattering when people see it so i, I would recommend people find it Absolutely. Yeah. It's shocking to see all of those dots appear on the world map faster than you can actually process. Like balloons. So it's, yeah. you know, it, it's not just like a static map. Has there ever been a class action lawsuit with regard to the radiation that w Americans were exposed to as a consequence of those above ground tests? There, there's been a lot of legal actions. Uh, I, I got, I've kind of lost track with exactly how some of them ended up, but the, the, the uh, soldiers were denied uh, benefits and coverage for for decades. They they find some of them finally did win mm -hmm. uh, some of that. The downwinders again, same thing. Some victories, a lot of losses. But I, one of the the good things about the the movie is that it has sparked, you know, in some quarters, uh, new attention on some of these issues. And actually, the thing that's gotten the most attention is the uh, what happened to the downwinders, um, and because there had been. Uh, they've continued to uh, fight for uh, some sort of compensation or some sort of recognition. And, um, you know, there's just been a lot of cover. I mean, I'm surprised. Yeah. I've, I've done it myself, but I mean, in mainstream New York Times, Associated Press, and so on and so forth, there's a lot of new coverage of the these uh, downwinders out in the, out in the Southwest that, that's happened since the movie. Uh, came out. What was Oppenheimer himself exposed to uh, lethal amounts of radiation? I mean, did, did that actually get him in the end, or <laughs> some other cause? Smoking, yeah. smoking Bob. Smoking. smoking. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, well, that makes sense. <laughs> you always see him with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. But I mean, maybe if uh, smoking didn't get him, maybe the radiation would have. Who knows? Uh, he was uh, he was far away in a bunker at yeah. Trinity, and he he didn't attend. Uh, yeah, he actually he was invited to one of the the, the first big. Uh, 
Pacific test at Bikini, which is a yeah. famous uh, separate story. Oh, and yeah. he, he refused to go. He didn't, hmm. uh, you know, he'd seen enough at Trinity, I think. I, and I see all these pictures and newsreel footage of soldiers handling, <clears throat> I think it's, it might either be little boy or fat man one of them, but they're just pushing it along. They're, they've got their shirts <laughs> off because it's the Pacific yeah, and yeah. they're just, they've got their hands on it. And it just seems, well, good Lord, what happened to those guys? Uh, was there any sort of danger along those lines or were those early bombs insulated enough that their radiation wasn't a, an issue? You know, I, I don't know uh, about uh, any of those people. There were two, uh, again, I've written a lot about this, two scientists who were who were exposed in accidents who died uh but you know this reminds me that <laughs> you know uh i've written about it maybe i, I was on your show a couple of years ago i yeah. uh, my most recent book then called the beginning or the end oh yeah which is the title of the first atomic bomb movie for, from mgm in 1947 mm -hmm. uh, which i wrote about uh uh, it would really a horrid movie of a, a fantastic kind of fun tale in some ways. How this movie that started as a warning from the the scientists about not building more bombs and became pro bomb propaganda once the Pentagon and uh, and Truman and the White House were given basic script approval and. Uh, script was completely revised and Truman got the actor playing him fired. And it's, it's just a wild story. But the fact is this problem of Hollywood coming to grips with Hiroshima goes back to, uh, you know, 1946 for 1947. So my, my book tells that full tale, but, you know, you mentioned radiation accident. One of the craziest things in the movie is uh, there is a, a character who is arming the Hiroshima bomb who, uh, has an accident just before the takeoff and uh, he gets a fatal dose of radiation. Now you might think, wow, they were offering a warning on this yeah. that long ago. That's great. You know, mm -hmm. well, what happens at the end of the movie is this character who had previously expressed some doubts about the bomb. Um, it, it ends, he's written a letter to his pregnant wife, which is read to her on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in which in this letter written on his deathbed, he he suddenly says, I was wrong and our future is so bright with nuclear and, you know, it's going to power cars and, you know, the bomb was, you know, had to had to be done. And uh, as, as this letter is read, he appears like a ghost on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and finishes reading the letter to his to his wife. Um, so that give, give you some bit of a tone of what. Yeah how Hollywood has treated this issue from the beginning. Yeah. Oppenheimer called that movie beginning or the end. He called it uh, bad writing and said the real characters in it were stiff and idiotic. Right. That's not a resounding endorsement, is it? Well, yet he signed, he signed the release. You know, they had yeah. to get, a, they had to get him to sign to, to, to be depicted in the movie as one, as one of the lead characters and a yeah. partial narrator. I uh, had to get his uh, signature on the dotted line. Mm -hmm. And uh, he finally caved, even though he, he he didn't really change his view of the film. And, you know, he saw the script. He knew it had many falsehood, falsehoods. Um, and yet he went along with it. So, you know, it kind of was a typical uh, Oppenheimer moment where he's kind of critical and might have some regrets about something and wringing his hands. But in the end, goes along with what's asked of him. And, 
you know, endorsing even in this case, uh, really a false picture of, uh, of the making and use of the bomb. In the movie, they depict this guy, Edward Teller, and he's known as what the father of the H bomb. H bomb, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and we learned that Oppenheimer ultimately was opposed to the H bomb. What was his rationale behind uh, taking a, a posture against the development of the H bomb? And in, in other words, what was the differences between the Trinity bomb, for example, and an H bomb in terms of magnitude of power, things like that, the destructive capabilities of it? Right. Is that why Oppenheimer was so opposed? Yeah, partly. I mean, the H bomb was uh, hundreds of times more powerful yeah. than the Hiroshima bomb. Yeah. Um, uh, Oppenheimer didn't think, you know, we needed it, uh, that we had enough, that the, the current bomb was destructive enough. Uh, he felt that it would uh, lead to a nuclear arms race with the Soviets. Now, we already, Soviets were already trying to build their own bomb then, uh, but that uh, they, the Soviets would clearly have to match that, try to match that, which they did. Uh, to keep up with us. So each each time you ratchet up the the destructive force, you uh, you know you inspire, encourage your your rival to do the same. So he, he, you know he, and as happened, both sides ended up with tens of thousands of nuclear warheads and could, could describe could destroy the world uh, thousands of times over. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's what happened. Uh, so you know now there are people who say, Oppenheimer was only against the H bomb because you know he was known as the father of the A bomb, and now there was going to be a bomb that succeeded that. So he was bomb, yeah, lose his place. I think there's there's some truth to that. Uh, that maybe some of it was almost jealousy. Yeah. But what's interesting, uh, if you see the movie, uh, the Teller character. I mean, Teller is someone I've lived with. Uh, in my mind uh, for uh, decades. <laughs> and he was always kind of a boogeyman. I mean, here's the man who invented the H-bomb or was the lead guy in the H-bomb. And then in the 60s and 70s, 80s, he was he was kind of a bellicose figure, you know, really pro-bomb, pro-build-more-bombs. So he Teller became kind of an evil name. But as the film shows, and again, it's mainly true, uh, Teller originally in 1945 was one of those who was uh, sympathetic with uh, you know the one organized effort to halt Truman from using the bomb, led by Leo Szilard, a physicist who had helped again had helped invent the bomb, uh, who was based in Chicago, and Szilard started a now famous petition that got uh, hundreds of scientists to sign, uh, asking Truman to hold off, uh, and uh, when it got circulated at Los Alamos. First of all, Oppenheimer put a halt to that. Uh, but we see in the film Teller two or three times uh, telling Oppenheimer, you know, I I might want to sign this petition or mm-hmm. what do you think about this petition? Oppenheimer keeps shooting it down. And ultimately, as in real life, Teller did not sign it. And actually, Oppenheimer helped bottle it up so it didn't get to Truman until it was too late. So mm-hmm. which the movie does not focus on. But uh, it does show that Oppenheimer opposing uh, these efforts. But again, these efforts to not use the bomb giving very, very short attention. Uh, but uh, but at least the Zillard petition does does show up there briefly. Okay, so today's show is brought to you by the After Party Podcast on our Patreon page. 
Every Friday, Kimberly Johnson and I get together in the refrigerator for a fourth Bob Seska Show podcast for the week. But this one's different from the usual Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday shows. First of all, it takes place in a refrigerator. Just thought I'd pass that along. The Friday After Party podcast is loaded with all the politics you want, while also including uncensored, completely obscene conversations about sex, drugs, movies, television, our personal lives, all the crap all we can't get away with on the free shows. So please help support this podcast by subscribing to our Friday After Party for just $10 per month. And bonus, you're also going to get two Shadow Docket shows every week included in that level of support. That's bobseskashow.com or just click the all caps Patreon link beneath the logo at bobseska.com. And we thank you. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Why was the magnitude of the A-bomb not good enough? <laughs> I mean, it's a loaded question, Greg, admittedly, but yeah. it seems like the destruction of the original A-bomb, it's like the difference between being uh, a billionaire and a hundred billionaire. It's like, how much yeah. money do you really need? How much destruction mm -hmm. do you really need to inflict in order to contain the development of the Soviets proliferation of nuclear weapons so it seems like it's just vast amounts of overkill to take that next step to the h-bomb isn't yeah. it well you know the film uh, communicates uh again accurately oppenheimer's uh, view as his defense of making the bomb mm -hmm. which was always well once it became clear that it could be made you can't stop scientists from uh working on it, bringing it into the world. Yeah. You know, once, it, once it seemed like it could be made in theory, you're going to get people to, to make something bigger and better. And uh, so that could be extended to the H-bomb as well. You know, recognition, again, if you're afraid of the Soviets, you say, well, you know, this, we're not going to keep them from building an H-bomb at some point. Uh, if we make it, it's going to, might inspire them to go faster. And, you know, we, we, we should try to control the bomb now and you know in the late 40s there was a great great movement led by scientists and others for international controls of the bomb for all sorts of things that might slow or prevent an arms race mm -hmm. and after you know a brief amount of interest in it and around 1946 1947 this idea was kind of pushed aside you know the red scare really took hold and so most americans and officials and the media we're all in favor of trying to stay ahead of the Russians. Uh, and so that was the big motivation. So this opportunity was lost. Now Oppen Oppenheimer was more in favor of that, trying to control the bomb. Mm -hmm. 
um, more than some others. And in, in the film, we see part of the reason for him losing his security clearance, the famous hearing, uh, really the last hour of the movie becomes, uh, you know, almost a courtroom drama in a way where the focus on the bomb in a way gets lost a bit. Hmm. Um, so um, anyway, that's sort of what was happening with the, yeah. the H-bomb. But, you know, that this the, the MGM movie that I wrote about in my book uh, and other uh, things that came out to 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 counter uh people calling for more control of the bomb including john hersey's famous hiroshima article in the new yorker and you know and book right the most important famous magazine article of all time and uh which came out in august of 1946 and Mm -hmm. immediately the mgm film was just part of several other important ways that the message of his book, which did focus on the, the victims and survivors of the bomb, had to be countered, had to be uh, rebuffed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that basically happened. And we are left with decades of an arms race. I've been curious since I first had you on, Greg. Uh, and this was, I think we talked about uh, the beginning or the end back in 2020. And mm-hmm. uh, and we've talked about Atomic Cover-Up, which was your follow-up book and documentary. Where do you personally land on the moral conundrum surrounding the bomb? And and I ask that question essentially in two parts. One, the question of the development of the bomb in the first place, which obviously involves uh, Robert Oppenheimer. And then the second moral question, and I get the sense I know where you land on this morally, the actual use of the A-bomb in Japan. Well, the, ma- the making of the bomb, of yeah. course, uh, was a similar kind of situation where the scientists sort of said, okay, once the atom was split, uh, a bomb can be made. Uh, and if a bomb can be made, we better be the ones to make it. Yeah. And um, we hear Hitler has a program. So the that was the whole impetus of the bomb project at Los Alamos. Yeah. Um, and of course it was led, you know, Oppenheimer was sort of the organizer, the coordinator. He was not the chief inventor. Uh, and of course, the key people were mainly uh, refugees from Hitler, uh, Jewish refugees. Yeah. Um, so, and they were tremendously motivated, of course, to to make the bomb once they got going. And so, you know, that part of it is pretty clear cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Hitler then surrendered in early May, and we are left with, uh, okay, now Japan's the only target. Uh, Japan is good. Every military leader from Eisenhower to MacArthur said they're basically on their last legs. Uh, but do we still want to use a bomb? Mm-hmm. And in fact, Oppenheimer was in, was part of the targeting people who met just days after Hitler surrendered to talk about targets in, in Hiroshima. Uh, it was in his office in Los Alamos. So uh, he gets a pass on that more or less in Nolan's movie, although there's one brief reference to it. Mm-hmm. But that became after, uh, starting in May, Japan became the focus. And so then you can say, okay, uh, I can accept the fact the bomb had to be made or the bomb was was going to be made. Now the question was, do we, do we use it? Do we have to use it? Do we have a demonstration or do we not use it at all? And just kind of, uh, you know, keep it uh, in the bottle. Yeah. Uh, and so that so that's a whole separate question then. Mm-hmm. And you can judge uh, whether in the end, um, on August 6th and August 9th, we needed 
to use the bomb, given the state that Japan was in, given, given the alternatives. Um, I mean, there were there were two blatant alternatives besides the demonstration, which was, as we had insisted, the Soviets uh, declared war on Japan mm-hmm. right after Hiroshima. And, and we, as we had insisted, and, uh, you know, Truman himself a week before that or uh, 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 three weeks before that, wrote in his journal, Finney Japs, when that occurs. Hmm. Uh, and he had another, he wrote a letter to his wife that uh, they had the same sentiment. Uh, even without the bomb, uh, there was the sense among, uh, certainly Eisenhower was in this camp, uh, that felt that uh, Japan was going to surrender very soon. And there was no need to use this, what Eisenhower called this awful thing uh, against them. Uh and the other way that the, in conjunction with that, the way the war could have ended in a, about the same time period, you know, a little later than the August 6th and August 9th, but could have ended that month was that um, we had demanded unconditional surrender from the Japanese, which, which had become a tradition. Yeah. <laughs> then, uh, and uh, uh, Japan wanted, to, one of the things they wanted to do is keep their emperor even as a symbolic leader. And we said, no, no negotiation, not going to give in on that big, big Japanese uh, demand. Um, and in fact, um, when Japan surrendered, eventually, um, the U.S. then said, OK, you can keep your emperor, you know, who remains to this day, mm-hmm. keep your emperor. So, again, there are many historians who feel that if the U.S. you know, had waited for Russia's entry, and had uh, you know said in advance to the Japanese, okay, you can keep your emperor, no big deal. Uh, that the war could have ended, uh, you know, shortly after the time it did end. And you know, the problem with uh, the Nolan movie, as as many others, you know, it sustains this official narrative that only the bomb of the two bombs prevented this bloody American invasion. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's no question that an invasion of Japan would have been bloody i don't care what the casualty figures you know, that have been bandied about 100,000 or 500,000 or 10,000 uh would have been it would have been bloody and horrible okay but that was not even scheduled till uh the end of november and december and january so there were 3 months between the time we used the bomb and when this bloody invasion would have happened so the question is whether it would have been worth taking a few more days or a couple more weeks or whatever to uh you know, throw that out the window and, uh, you know, hold off using the bomb because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, Truman, what happened with the Trinity test, you know, I hate to hate to keep babbling on here, but <laughs> no, please keep going. <laughs> okay. One thing that happened with the Trinity test is that once we tested the bomb successfully, Truman knew as he wrote explicitly in his diary, he had the bomb in his back pocket. Mm -hmm. He could use it and there'd be several more rolling off the assembly line soon. Once that bomb was successfully tested, to me and to to a lot of other people now, all this talk of invasion is is moot. Yeah, There's no way in a million years that an American president would have launched an invasion of Japan uh, with all the casualties if he had atomic bombs in his pocket. Mm-hmm. So the question that Truman had after Trinity was, you know, do I actually use them now, you know, rush to use them? Um, or do I hold off for a while? Cause I can always use them. In fact, I'll have, you know, five more I could use if I wait another month. 
Um, but there was no way he was going to, you know, well, let's uh, dither until, you know, November, December, and then we'll, you know, we'll have this invasion. Uh, so to me, the invasion is kind of off the off the charts. Now, that doesn't mean it was irrelevant. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly, it was, it, they had to plan it. Uh, until the bomb was tested, it was uh, uh, going to be a reality, perhaps, if Japan didn't surrender. Um, so, I mean, no one's de- debunking the fact that invasion was planned and was would have been horrid. Uh, the yeah. question is, is there any scenario where that invasion would have happened? Mm-hmm. You know, after the bomb was tested and was, and like I said, more and bigger bombs were about to be made. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, could Truman drop two bombs in early August, and you know maybe he would have dropped five bombs in early September. But the the legacy of the fact that we dropped the bombs, and I mean that's I guess my final point would be, we can focus too much on should we have dropped the bomb, and you know uh, the all the Japanese who died, and civilians, and everything else. Okay, that's one important legacy, especially for the people who died, uh, but. The other question is, okay, what if you accept the fact that, uh, you know, that was certainly a very tempting, inevitable thing that that was likely to happen? Mm-hmm. fact that we actually use these two weapons set a horrible precedent for the 78 years since. Uh, I mean, again, p- put aside the civilians who died, okay? Mm-hmm. Just talk about the uh, precedent and the legacy. Uh, so using these two weapons... Uh, First of all, showed this was a usable weapon. This was a weapon that was worth building more of and having that you could conceivably use it, even if you, you say you know, don't want to. Uh, so that alone helped justify uh, building more and bigger and, and an arms race. Uh, secondly, it set really set the precedent for use, which remains today. Uh, U.S. still has a first use or first strike policy where any president I know we, we may be less afraid since Trump is not there for, for now. Mm-hmm. He may be returning. <laughs> uh, any president can cite this and use nuclear weapons first in a, any crisis or if we are attacked conventionally. Conventional attack, we can use nuclear weapons first um, because we set this precedent and we've defended it. That's the key thing. I mean, that's what's driven me now for 40 years mm-hmm. is – you can't go back and undo it. Uh, you can't bring back the dead and so forth. But you can send a different message where instead of every year, you get uh, historians and the media and officials saying, well, you know, we should never use nuclear weapons again. They're too horrible to use, blah, blah, blah. But then the same breath defending the two times we did use them. Uh, you might call that a first strike. Yeah. Uh, and they'll say, well, it was different circumstances and it was a bloody war and so on and so forth. But everyone can imagine other circumstances, you know, currently where we are threatened or we might suffer casualties or whatever, where it'd say, well, okay, we don't want any nuclear weapons. Uh, there's like a taboo, but, you know, uh, maybe we have to use them. And, uh, oh, yeah, we've used them twice before and we've complete, continued to defend it. Uh and, you know, Putin loves to remind us, as he's mm-hmm. done this year, every time we raise uh, warnings about don't use nukes in Ukraine, 
And he loves to say, well, where do you get off saying that? You know, yeah. you know, I'll, if I want to, you know, you use them and defended it, you know? So, I mean, you know, if I use them, uh, you know, I'll use them. So it's a, a, a bad global precedent yeah. that, uh, you know, instead of saying, well, you know, yeah, probably in retrospect, uh, a lot of questions about, did we have to use them? And we really need to look at that. And, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't have used them. Uh, we should, you know, if anything, Hiroshima and Nagasaki lesson is you have to go the extra mile or miles to try not to use nuclear weapons. Don't you say, well, there's kind of on the assembly line and, you know, we want to get this war over with and, you know, let's use them. And, uh, you know, that's a very, very uh, dangerous lesson for today. One of the things I keep thinking about, Greg, and maybe you can shed some light on this, and I want to preface by saying I'm not trying to vindicate Truman at all in this decision, but one of the things I think about every time we have this conversation is I fast forward to the Cuban Missile Crisis and how JFK was not necessarily getting the best information from his Joint Chiefs. And right. so then you rewind back to the lead up to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was Truman at all being snowed a little bit by Curtis LeMay and several others as right. far as invasion versus A-bomb versus casualties versus civilian casualties? Was he being sort of uh, pigeonholed toward authorization to use the A-bomb? Yeah, I mean, general, no one pushed him harder than General Groves. Who's yeah, oh yeah. Trade by good guy Matt Damon in the movie, with, <laughs> I'd say a fair amount of sympathy. Yeah. He was Rose was actually kind of an ogre in many levels. Mm -hmm. uh, was kind of the lead person calling uh, radiation disease uh, after the after Hiroshima as uh, you know just propaganda and Ugh. and he even said, "I hear it's a kind of a nice, wonderful way to die." <laughs> Um, oh my God! But but uh, so yes, Groves was pushing him, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, people. There's a famous quote that uh, they, that uh, Groves felt, and others observed that the Tr Truman was like a little boy on a toboggan. Hmm. Was the, the expression that he had come into office uh, suddenly with FDR's death. He was not a major figure in any sort. Uh, he was overwhelmed by the job. And right about the time that you know, they're making decisions on on pushing this uh, use of the bomb. So it was a terrible situation for him, mm -hmm. prepared, uh, but certainly made him susceptible to any kind of, uh, you know, urgings. And in fact, he left himself open and, you know, was happy to have uh, Groves, his uh, secretary of state, J Jimmy Burns, who was the most hawkish on the use of the bomb you know, kind of make the decisions and, yeah. uh, and he signed off on them. And, you know, it must be said that in this atmosphere, and I always like to emphasize this, that it's perfectly understandable that people, particularly servicemen and their families felt that, boy, do anything you can to, you know, get this war over. And the Japanese committed all kinds of war crimes and, you know, even shortening the war by one day, yeah. is uh, you know a good thing look at and look at all the carnage in this war uh, uh, zillions of people who died uh we'd already carpet bombed japanese cities yeah uh, and of course there was massive carpet bombing of cities in europe uh 
by all sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's horrible war crimes, you know, daily war crimes. And so, you know, you have to be very sympathetic to the view that, well, let's get this bomb and use it. And and I certainly was particularly sympathetic to soldiers and their families and now their descendants today who feel and were always told uh, only the bomb prevented this invasion or, you know, my grandfather could have died in an invasion or so-and-so. My f- father was being sent to the Pacific and he would have died on the shores of Japan. Um, so very sympathetic to those the feelings, but it's mm-hmm. kind of the view from the foxhole, you know. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the reality of the necessity of using the bomb was, uh, you know, sustained in the, you know, in Washington and the Pentagon and people who were making the decisions, what, what they were basing their decision on. Um, so it, it's made it an incredible uh, historical question and debate now for all these years. Uh, new evidence keeps emerging, um, even like Truman's diary, which I cited early, no one knew about for many, for many, many years. Mm. Um, so there's just a different, and people can interpret the evidence different, um, you know, but always with sympathy for the view that uh, let's get this war over with and, uh, you know, stop the killing if we can. And the view that it seemed like, wow, the war ended or Japan surrendered, you know, uh, eight days after Hiroshima seems to be cause and effect. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, number one, most people still don't know that, you know, Russia entered the war uh, before that uh, and other things that, that could have happened and what and what the what the, the what the people were really saying in Washington uh, about why we wanted to use the bomb and had to use the bomb and so forth. So it, it's an open question. Uh, but, you know, always with sympathy for what this the view has been that it uh you know saved american lives i mentioned curtis lemay a second ago he was getting really damn good in the worst ways possible at firebombing japanese cities made of paper and just decimating those cities why did Hiroshima and Nagasaki bring japan to its knees when the firebombings did not And what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to get at here, Greg, is, again, the moral question, was the A-bomb necessary in Mm -hmm. Japan? Um, We were doing this firebombing and massive civilian casualties. And firebombing is not just, I mean, these are incendiary bombs meant to burn buildings and people. And uh, that wasn't doing it. So maybe... Was it the Soviet question? Was it the the hypothesis that uh, we dropped the A-bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to send a signal to Moscow? Uh, where do you land on that question of <laughs> firebombings versus the A-bomb? Why did one work and one not work? And the motivations behind ultimately uh, pulling the trigger on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll never, unfortunately, we'll never know <clears throat> yeah. what would have happened in the course of the war if we had not dropped the two bombs. Mm. Yeah, God help us. Maybe we could have dropped one and then waited on Nagasaki. Yeah. You know, it's one, I mean, to, to me, many histor- there are many historians who, I would say, approve the dropping of the Hiroshima bomb, yeah. who are horrified by the Nagasaki bomb and feel it is a war crime. So to me, the, the, the second bomb, which just rolled off the assembly line, no one cared enough to intervene and say, well, let's wait. 
uh, Groves was pushing for the earliest possible use. Um, nobody cared. You know, it's, oh yeah, we're going to drop another. We're actually a stronger. The plutonium bomb, the second bomb, different than the uranium bomb on Hiroshima, much more mm -hmm. powerful. And nobody cared. So uh, to me, Nagasaki is clearly a war crime, and many many people agree. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we'll never know what would have happened if Truman had held off. You know, we'll we'll never know. All you can do is speculate. Uh, now that's very what what makes uh, many people comfortable with the use of the bomb was that you, well, we do know what did happen. Japan did surrender uh, in short order. That's a known. Yeah. So isn't it tempting to say, well, cause and effect, you know, mm -hmm. right? but we don't know what the alternative, you know, alternative would have been. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. We had been firebombing the cities for quite some time. And uh, Japan, but, you know, yes, Japan had not yet surrendered, but they had sent out uh, peace emissaries and peace feelers. I mean, I think people people sometimes over can overstate that, well, Japan was about ready to surrender. Or they had, had these surrender the, the peace feelers. And it, it's all true. The, the carpet bombing certainly contributed to Japan uh, seeming to be more willing yeah. to surrender. Um but you can't, you know, you can't just say, well, they had these peace feelers, so they were ready to surrender. But we don't know what would have happened after the mm -hmm. Soviet attack, uh, whether yeah. that would happen quickly or not. We don't know. But it was a totally different situation. So, yes, the carpet bombing, more than anything, uh, destroyed Japan's ability to resist. You know, yeah. I mean, the, the industrial strength was decimated. Their harbors, the the shipping. Uh, the planes, you know, they were, had to resort to kamikaze attacks. Um, there's no question, as all, again, all the military leaders and even Truman said himself, Japan was was just was uh, as Oppenheimer said and is quoted in the movie. He says, "Essentially, essentially defeated." It's a good, good, essentially defeated. Yeah. No one questions that. The question is how quickly they would have actually thrown in the towel. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, so that's, you know, that's the question that we'll, I guess, we'll never, never have an answer for. And people can watch and make a decision based on historical evidence or maybe on morality. You know, can you can you defend deliberately dropping two incredibly destructive weapons over the center, deliberately over the center of two cities? No one pretended we were dropping them over a military target. Um it was they were uh, deliberately dropped over the center of two cities to cause the most death and destruction. Yep. And uh, we had alternatives. We could have dropped them, uh, you know, uh, off in the harbors. We could have dropped them over the military encampments outside the cities. We would have gotten the same uh, visual effect. Um, we could have, uh, you know, done things differently, even in using the bomb. But we deliberately used them over the center of cities. So. How do you feel about that morally? Well, look at all the other deaths in World War II, you know? Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, but, or you say, look, you can't. I mean, it's, yeah, I I, I cannot defend deliberately targeting uh, hundreds of thousands for death, uh, you know, from the sky. So uh, that's the eternal debate. It seems like in the long run, uh, general uh, public opinion about the decision to drop the A-bomb 
has weakened significantly. Uh, It seems like through the course of documentaries, certainly your writing and and the documentaries that you've made uh, have contributed to this as well. I think people are beginning to rethink support for those two attacks. Yeah, well, we'll see what the response to the Oppenheimer movie is. I'm I'm not, uh, I'm I'm skeptical, but hopeful uh, that people will take uh, I mean, the, not only will they take some message about what well, we have to do something about uh, curbing nuclear weapons today and getting them off the first strike policy. And uh, it's very vague what, what the movie wants you to do, yeah. uh, unfortunately. Uh, uh, and the movie is also you know, very vague on what's the lesson of dropping the bombs. Right. Uh, but what the message, I, I don't think uh, I, it, it's hard to think that uh, especially younger people coming to this issue the first time um, are going to rise up over this uh, or, or say, you know, we obviously it was wrong to drop the bomb and we have to dismiss all the media and historians who claim it was justified. Uh, I don't see that happening, especially since the movie doesn't do a good job of uh, reopening that question. But, um, you know, I hope there are positive after effects of the of the movie you know i guess we'll see soon yeah. uh, if that's true is certainly ma- massively popular uh but what people come away with they may come away more with wow what a great performance mm. by robert downey so glad he's <laughs> so glad he's back he's back and you know, killian murphy killian murphy's been underrated for so long yeah well, yeah it's great this is his star turn you know, and now, well, now let's see. Now let's see when when can we go see Barbie? Um, <laughs> you know, I I just yeah. don't know. I yeah. don't know the answer to that. But I, I I hope that there's a positive after effects of the movie being made and and so many people seeing it. Yeah, yeah. I noticed there's a love story in Oppenheimer, and the first thing I thought of when I heard that news was. Well, it's just like the beginning of the, or the end. Yeah, well, there's two. And Oppenheimer, is, as maybe as some people have read in reviews, basically he did in real life have a mistress mm-hmm. named Jean Tadlock, who was a communist or a former communist. Yeah. Uh, and they, he famously left Los Alamos in the, while building the bomb to sneak off to San Francisco to see her. Mm-hmm. And um, she later committed suicide uh, yeah. in a bathtub. Um, but you know, the film has, you know, uh, the film has really a couple of ludicrous sex scenes. I have to say, uh, we see, not only do we get a chance to see Gene Tadlock, uh, nude, uh, riding Oppenheimer, but Oppenheimer, his famous quote about, I am uh, become death destroyer of worlds. Uh, she kind of sh- shows it, shows that quote to him in a book and he kind of reads it off while having sex, uh, in that wow. scene. Okay. Uh, then there's another scene where he imagined he's in his security hearing and he's somehow uh, in this room with all these uh, old white men and his and his wife. He has this vision of having sex with his uh, mistress on the table. Uh, so uh, I don't know if that's a spoiler alert or we'll warn you off the movie, but. Um, maybe it's necessary to break the tension. I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. maybe. Yeah. yeah, maybe. But, you know, I, I did want to m- mention that we didn't, come back to it in a way just you know you mentioned my my film and book of the same name atomic cover-up yes uh, which uh you know i, I would, would encourage people to seek out especially i mean the book is readily available uh because it's what happened at the other end of the bomb uh, which is not in the movie uh in japan and then uh, the same theme we've been talking about how 
that was covered up, how the U.S. Uh, suppressed all of the Japanese uh, and the key American footage um, for decades after. So Americans were denied a chance to see really the most vital historic uh, evidence of what happened in Japan for decades. So, mm. you know, my book and movie, uh, again, we get away from Hollywood and look at the real world where decisions were made to, you know, to suppress the, you know, the, really the most important evidence of what had happened at the other end of the bomb. And I think that's, again, certainly what's missing in Oppenheimer. Well, okay, my friend, uh, you started a uh, a new Substack, didn't you, covering some of this stuff, right? Yeah, and I, yeah. I, I want to, it's called Oppenheimer from Hiroshima to Hollywood. And I know, yeah. I mean, I have another Substack that's called uh, uh, Between Rock and a Hard Place that goes back to some of my uh, rock and roll days with Crawdaddy and so oh, forth. Oh, yeah. Uh, but that's a separate Substack. So if people are looking, uh, want to find the, uh, the the daily Oppenheimer Substack, you'd have to search, uh, you know, Oppenheimer from Hiroshima to Hollywood, and you'll you'll find it. Well, I've got links in the description under this episode. Meantime, the book is called The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. That, of course, is available everywhere still. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And is there any place conveniently uh, showing the uh, documentary based on that? Is that still uh, available out there somewhere? Uh, Atomic Cover Up, uh, if, if that's what you're referring to, was is not online anymore. It was, okay. it was shown at 20 film festivals, and uh, it was up online for free for a long time. And now it's there's actually a distributor who's getting it to schools and universities and oh, great. community groups. So it's getting wide play out there, but it's no longer uh, easy to find online in its full form. Is it ever going to be available like on physical media or something oh, sure. like Blu-ray? Uh, yeah. I'm sure it will be. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. Okay, sounds I've great. Done, I've done two films in the last year that ended up on PBS, and so I, we're still hopeful about this film actually getting the national PBS airing. Yeah, see, I, I blanked on that. I thought there was a documentary also based on the beginning or the end. No, uh, no. But, okay, that's just the book. Just me. Just All me right. yapping about it everywhere. So. <laughs> But I think the film may be up on YouTube besides streaming. I oh, okay. Yeah, right, right. Someone told me they saw it in its entirety on YouTube, but I am not don't know if that's true. Okay, my friend. Well, this is hey, awesome as always. Yeah, yeah. Always a pleasure, Bob. Any anytime. We could have me on sometime. We'll talk about the music or, or baseball or something. <laughs> Perfect. You're on. We'll do it. Okay. Thanks, okay, Bob. Take care. See you next time, Greg. Bye-bye. Let's fall into each other. The light is fading fast the days of you so let us do each one like it's the last the stream will be a river before the claws of dread grab my heart and make it smart with things i should have said you never hear it coming it's faint enough to miss so listen for the drumming of a slow apocalypse Jets will pierce the pregnant sky 
Refrigerated houses With all the curtains drawn Tumbleweeds are gaining speed On picture-perfect lawns You never hear it coming It's faint enough to miss So listen for the drumming Of a soul Oh, I'm 